Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Coindesk TV, you're watching it. The hash. Thanks for being here. I'm Zach Seward. We got Jensen Assey. We got Wendy O. We got Will Foxley. We got news to get to. A lot of stuff going on in crypto, as always, starting with Jen. A little update on SPF and all those shenanigans. What do you got? All right, Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, founder of FTX, who is behind bars right now awaiting a criminal trial in October, um, has revealed part of his defense. We've known this, I, I think, at least for some days now. The defense strategy that he intends to use is called the advice of counsel strategy. And this would be essentially blaming counsel and his lawyers for giving him poor advice, which then led to the implosion of FTX. He intends to argue that he was acting in good faith when loaning funds to Alameda and FTX executives in setting signal messages to auto-delete and in setting up a set of North American entities, because that's what his lawyers advised him to do. Uh, the law firm that is at the middle of this is Fenwick and West. I don't do not believe that we know the attorney's names that he plans to say gave him this advice, but we do know the firm now. Uh, Zach, going to toss this off to you. We had a guest on First Mover recently who said this is a Hail Mary move. It is like the last resort in defenses that you can use. That is not a quote, but that is essentially what he was saying. What do you make of this? Just another twist and turn in what is an increasingly strange legal saga, right? You, you really don't know what to believe with SBF at this point. You don't know what to make of these various public statements that he's made. You don't know if this has any chance of being a useful strategy to him. You don't even know if he was actually advised the way he was saying that he was advised now. So it is really hard to judge a lot of these things because we get a lot of this uh, sort of, I don't know, two-faced talk out of Sam Bankman-Fried while this crisis was unfolding and subsequently. So it's really kind of hard to say what's what here, but it certainly is maybe again that Hail Mary effort to uh, shorten or curtail the amount of time that SBF will spend behind bars. But yeah, I don't know. Seems seems to be a bit grasping at straws. I don't know. I'd be curious to see if this carried any weight in the court of law. But obviously, time will tell. And we'll see that in October in New York. It's shaping up to be, again, prime time must, must view 
court experience. So I don't know. Will, I, I'm tempted to throw it back to our legal expert, Jensen Assey, but I will throw it to you for your, your thoughts. I mean, I would give it to the legal expert, just a lowly pleb over here. Uh, no, I'll, I'll take it really quickly. I'm, this is the trial of the century, right? So we're going to see what's, what Sam Egan-Fried is going to come up with while he's in jail right now and trying to figure out for his defense. It's not looking good, though, right? Like, look at all the things that are alleged against him. Even this week, he was back in court for two more indictments about uh, money laundering and related to transferring of uh, funds over wire. Uh, those, I think, came from the Treasury Department. So it's got a lot to deal with here. And I, I don't know if like his counsel and this whole strategy is going to fit for all those things, right? Like maybe it helps him out on a few counts. That would probably be a best case scenario. That would be my imagination here running wild. But things look really bad. They have all this documentation from the company, right? Like all this information was handed over fairly quickly. We think back to just last year when Sam Bankman Freed resigned. In a matter of like a few days, he was gone, right? And then all that information was basically locked in time for now uh, everyone to go through and pick apart his eventual defense in this case. So it's not looking good. I don't love the strategy, but if you're going to say I'm not guilty, then you have to come up with something. Throw it over Wendy for your thoughts. I have the hottest take out of everyone on the show. I don't care. I literally don't care oh. what happens to him. I don't care about the legal system. It's never going to be fair. If you have family with money and resources, you're always going to be a step ahead of the underdogs. I just want, you know, I want the courts to figure this out as fast as possible for everybody that got got by FTX and then is struggling in bankruptcy court because the more time they waste on this, doesn't matter if it's the criminal stuff or it's the actual bankruptcy stuff because it's all interrelated. It's just going to continue to take money from creditors. And as we have seen with different bankruptcy cases with crypto asset exchanges, in the past, the courts and the attorneys and everybody just really takes advantage of the people um, of retail and everybody that's a, that was kind of associated and got caught off guard. And that's just really what it is. They just spend money on attorneys and it just at the end of the day, less money goes to the creditors, the people that really got scammed and got screwed over. So I just don't care anymore. I don't care if he's eating bread and water. I don't care if he's a little bit uncomfortable. He did something bad. He got caught doing it. Generally, when my daughter does something bad, we do a little bit of a timeout. You know, we start working on that. And just the fact that his parents are not taking really any, any accountability, they haven't been questioned. Where the heck is Sam Trabuco? I just don't care anymore. I mentioned we had a lawyer on First Mover recently and asked if there's been precedent set. Has this kind of defense been successfully used before? Um, and he said, again, not a direct quote and maybe exaggerating a little bit for dramatic effect, but I will try not to. He said that the, when he's seen this before, the lawyers really just kind of lay the defendant out to dry at the end. Of, at the end of the day, these lawyers are lawyers, right? They're not going to come out and say, you know, yeah, of course, I told him to do all of these alleged crimes that we're sitting here for. And they definitely have the receipts to back it, back it up. And so. I'm curious. I think it's going to be, Zach, like you said, a very dramatic trial that we'll all be sitting on the edge of our seats watching, especially uh, when this firm and the attorneys at this firm take the stand. It will be interesting to hear their side of the story. And of course, we have all of the other people who are involved in all of these alleged crimes on the other side. You know, they're, they're going to take the stand for the prosecution. They're going to tell the story from their perspective. And I just don't think it looks good for Sam Bankman-Fried when everybody else is saying, yeah, we did this. Yeah, we messed up. We are guilty. And Sam's the only one out here saying, my lawyer said it was okay, so I'm not guilty. But the thing is, that's like such typical behavior of somebody that comes from that type of privilege to come out and say it really is like, 
He has no awareness of what he actually did or the people impacted around him. And he just kind of say, no, I didn't do it. It was just a mistake or, you know, this happened or this happened or this happened. I think it's absolutely pathetic. And I wish his attorneys would just tell him to shut up. And I wish he would also shut up as well. But I don't think that will end up happening and he will continue to incriminate himself. So I just don't care. I want this to be over with everyone to get their money back or some of their money back. Oh, I guess we could go into my story now. Okay, so this is important. Kind of. Maybe not. So apparently the FBI believes that North Korea hackers may cash out stolen Bitcoin worth over $40 million. FBI said Lazarus Group and APT38 were behind multiple hacks this year. They include approximately $60 million theft from payment processor Alpho, Alpho and the $100 million exploit from Atomic Wallet. January, the FBI named two groups responsible for the 2020 Horizon Bridge hack, $100 million stolen. Um, as far as my thoughts on this go... I don't know. I don't really have any thoughts on this. It's just an expression. It's not a thought. If you're listening in the podcast, Wendy's thoughts is just a displeased expression. (laughs) I I mean, like, this is bad stuff. So hopefully they, you know, they catch the bad guys if bad things was actually done. But maybe that this is a big psyop and it wasn't even this particular group. Maybe it was, in fact, something else. Love this story. If there was a Time magazine for crypto and they did like the person of the year, the best, the hottest take would be North Korean hackers for person of the year because they remain fascinating. Ooh, I like press that. release that the FBI put on that. Uh, the, the FBI put a, put a press release out on this. Also spicy, right? This is like a bank heist. This is like a low speed chase, right? Where the FBI is identifying the wallet addresses, six wallet addresses uh, of these alleged North Korean hackers. And they're saying, watch out, watch out for these wallets, folks. Do not transact with these wallets or anything that could be associated with these wallets. Do your diligence. We're tracking these bad guys, and we know where they live. And this is super funny to be able to watch a bank heist such as this play out in real time on chain but with the FBI identifying in the last 24 hours that these alleged North Korean hackers are probably looking to unload this stuff somewhere. So it's super funny that, I don't know, crypto enables this, right? It enables this visibility into all these crazy things that happen in a very opaque space with all sorts of crazy actors, some of whom are financing nuclear weapons development in North Korea. So it's just crazy. I like this press release. I like this news item. It's crazy town. North Korean hackers, crazy town. That's it. That's all I got. I'm confused why Wendy didn't get all excited about this story. I feel like this is this is everything, I right? Also, it's like just like, why is Wendy at a loss for words? It's like all point bullet <laughs> all points bulletin. Yeah. I just don't yeah. want them to target me. Oh, that's fair. Okay. Well, that's, that's a fair point. Are you a North Korean hacker? The, the O show. Oh, no, no. I don't, no. I don't affiliate with... Time. I don't live that life anymore. I don't affiliate with bad people. This is also another valid use case for blockchain technology because you can actually see everything live on chain and you can catch people if they are, in fact, doing something bad. And you can't really do that with cash or with wire transfers. In order to like subpoena a bank to get any types of records, it takes a lot of time and resources. But when it does come to anything on the blockchain, it's there forever. It's immutable. And you shouldn't do anything bad with cash or with blockchain technology because you're going to get got or you're going to get framed. You'll get got. Yeah, just following up on Zach's thoughts here. I think this is like a pretty important story. And I, I like to see these stories because I think it sort of brings in like a geopolitical question with crypto, which oftentimes we just forget about in like the day in, day out of like the friend tech pumps and like the random token pumps. Like we have the ability to move money seamlessly over borders like for the first time in human history. And like there's consequences for that real time, right? So if the FBI is putting out these addresses, well, what does that mean for all these businesses who do use crypto, who do use Bitcoin? Well, that means they need to pay attention to these addresses, right? And that means that there's going to be tons of different custodial solutions for building in 
easy applications so you don't use these addresses or you don't interact with these addresses. There's already a lot of solutions out there. But I think you can see in stories like this where the future of crypto is going. There's going to be the need for a lot of different products and services that sort of work around like the problems that an open blockchain does create. And there's like a lot of benefits from having an open blockchain, but there's also a lot of downsides. And that's sort of where you get like the innovation, the creativity. This brings me back to the Tornado Cash case, right? Where uh, OFAC came in and said, like, hey, can you use Tornado Cash anymore? We're sanctioning this address on Ethereum. And that caused a lot of headaches for a lot of people who had money on top of Tornado Cash. But again, it's a geopolitical question. And for the first time in history, we'd see that an online address for cryptocurrency was sanctioned by government. We're going to see that happen time and time again as North Korea and other rogue nations and terrorist regimes are able to use cryptocurrencies. Jen? Yeah, you guys all took the words right out of my mouth. Like Both the groups that are mentioned in this article are responsible for many of the hacks that we've spoken about right here on the show. And I think it's important, and you've all said it, open and transparent means you know we can track anything. And I think this is the first time we've seen big groups like this steal mass amounts of funds, I believe in the hundreds of millions of dollars, if not tens of millions, I stand to be corrected. I think it's hundreds of millions. And we can just watch what's happening with those funds. We know exactly what's happening. And when they finally get to an off-ramp, um, agencies like the FBI can freeze them. And I think that you're all right. That is huge innovation. I just hope the next time we hear uh, Congress or senders speak about all of the bad things that come with the crypto industry and all of the bad ways that North Korea is able to get funding because of vulnerabilities in the crypto industry, that this comes up. I say this every time we talk about hacks and we talk about tracking funds across blockchains and ecosystems and getting to fiat off ramps and the FBI saying, you know, watch out for these wallets. And I hope that this conversation finally makes its way into the lawmakers' mouths because that's just going to help them create a better future for us all. Guys, we got another problem with DeFi. Curve token dropped about 20% this week after Bitcoin and Ethereum also tumbled about 10% each last week in a very sudden market drop-off Thursday going into Friday. What does that mean for the DeFi program? Well, if Curve Token's going down, we have to look back to July, what's happening with Michael Igorov, the founder of Curve, who had a large amount of money out in the lending programs. And as the price of Curve started to drop, his margin call number started to creep up closer and closer. He staved off systematic destruction of DeFi itself by getting a lot of whales, including Justin Sun, Jeffrey Wang, and others to buy some of his Curve bags off of him. But we're not quite out of the woods yet because the price of Curve has been steadily dropping. At the same time, the rest of DeFi is looking at itself and asking, is there enough controls built into our protocols to be able to protect ourselves from systematic risk and the fallout of these different DeFi token prices? Zach, I'm going to throw this one first to you. I somewhat expected to see this continue to be an issue because the size of the CRV token loans out that Michael took. It seems to be this is going to be a continuing issue. There's still about $45 million in debt that he has outstanding as of now. Yeah, there's a great quote in this piece uh, from Sid Powell uh, of Maple Finance saying, hey, you know, this whole, uh, this whole episode proves that bad debt can exist in over-collateralized lending, right? Over-collateralized lending is a key feature of the DeFi world. Going back to MakerDAO, you had to put up like three to one ETH to get, you had to, there was a three to one ratio where you put in ETH and you get DAI minted as, as a result, right? And historically, that was seen as a nice safety cushion, uh, that there was going to be the, the ability to solve these issues 
based on the over collateralization that's provided in these systems. And now we're seeing again, this whole episode sort of really challenge that thesis and really sort of shake DeFi to its core. Um, so now I think people are really trying to think about, again, how do we make this more resilient? How do we avoid, again, all these trappings of the old financial system that we were looking to avoid? And now they're suddenly baked into the DeFi uh, lending world. And how do we fix that? And I think that's the big question that a lot of people in the space who are far smarter than me are really trying to think through so that such that DeFi can be a viable alternative to traditional financial systems where lending and borrowing occurs, because it's really far off from that, unfortunately. And um, this episode, I think, was um, was eye-opening to a lot of folks. I think you mentioned the thing about whales having to step in and backstop this activity. That certainly is um, pretty counter to the ethos of what DeFi should be about. Whatever solutions come out of this episode, I hope they're good solutions. I hope it's another episode where DeFi is ultimately battle-tested for the long haul. But right now, I think a lot of people are sort of like kind of down the dumps about what this episode revealed about the DeFi ecosystem uh, writ large. But it doesn't mean that people aren't obviously working to fix some of those shortcomings. Uh, Jen, I saw your hand. I'm going to throw it your way. Yeah, just off the back of what you're saying, there's some other good tidbits in here from Paul Frambot, who's the CEO of Morpho. He said that if the curve situation illustrated anything, it's that DeFi lending protocols should not be viewed as autonomous pieces of computer code, but as systems that rely heavily on human decisions. He then went on to say that risk management is too tedious and complex for DAOs, and it naturally often falls into the hands of large delegates and risk management firms. And so I just feel like, you know, there are these DAOs trying to do everything, and then we have smart contracts. And the only way we can understand where the vulnerabilities are, or what we're missing in those smart contracts is to have people use them, unfortunately. And I, Wendy, I know you're probably going to say it, but every time we talk about DeFi, I think it's important to say we're still early and we're going to see these vulnerabilities. And I think that traditional risk management firms probably don't understand the ins and outs of DeFi to be able to advise on all of the risks at once. And we're going to see risk management firms who are specifically targeted to DeFi products pop out of situations like this. Zach? Well, didn't Gauntlet kind of warn of this? There is sort of a DeFi risk management thing out there, Gauntlet, and they kind of warned of this. And I think it was like poo-pooed, right? Is that the history of this one, Will? Correct me on that. Because I know that that was, that was sort of the, uh, the, the prologue to what transpired that got a lot of people kind of upset. So worth pointing out that there was sort of this, that, that footnote that, uh, that can be mentioned. But Will, if you have any other further content on that, go for it. Yeah, no, they did say stuff like I think back in January that like Abe's position itself was not manageable and like the curve token uh, was I guess, like over lended, if you could use that word. Uh, Michael Egrov had put about like 50% of all uh, this, these tokens across different various DeFi platforms. And as pointed out in this piece, again, there was a, a it's very difficult to know like what's happening to other DeFi lending protocols, but it is systematic in the sense that if you have one DeFi lending protocol using a lot of one token and three or four others are also using that token for big loans, well, if the price of that token starts going down, well, then your loan might get liquidated across all those and that would cause a systematic issue for everyone. And yes, Gauntlet looked at that, wasn't really pushed forward. It's really hard to do that. I think a lot of times and when it comes to DeFi, people have to learn by failing. Uh, you have to get liquidated. And that's why the, these things exist, right? Margin calls exist for a reason. And that's why there's very high valuations on these things like exist for reasons. But it's it kind of sucks. But I think that's just how DeFi learns and matures. And so far, it seems like we're out of the woods, but we'll have to keep an eye on what's happening with Michael. I'm looking at the curve chart and it looks like absolute trash. These are general. I'm looking at the weekly chart. These it literally looks like a pump and dump again. I'm not saying it, it is a pump and dump. It actually did have real utility. But again, 
DeFi is still in beta. A lot of people put way too much faith in a lot of these DeFi protocols. And just based off the fact that the Curve CEO, founder, whatever it is that he does, um, the fact that he had so many of the Curve tokens put in other different protocols, that can easily cause a crypto contagion, just like we saw with the centralized exchanges. DeFi is technically still in beta. And if you're putting too much up, you could absolutely get wrecked. And I also thought it was funny because when we started seeing um, the when the bear market initially kicked off, I says, we're going to see a lot of damage due to these collateralized loans. People laughed at me. They're like, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. Here we are. Called it. Nice. All right. We'll change gears. We're going to still talk about DeFi. This stuff is about the TVL, the total value locked in DeFi, hitting all-time lows south of $38 billion. Yeah, it's just, uh, again, speaks to the DeFi doldrums, the DeFi stagnation, as MakerDAO founder Rune Christensen put it recently, uh, that DeFi is seeing, even as ETH, the underlying asset that, uh, that undergirds a lot of the DeFi activity, has increased in price, right? So you would maybe expect to see a commensurate growth in TVL, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing people assess DeFi with a different lens. Interestingly, relative to the high interest rate environment, I think that we're seeing now in the traditional financial system. Will, got to put you on the spot. Uh, DeFi numbers not looking so great according to this chart. What are, you, what are your thoughts on why that might be? Yeah, I was talking to a DeFi founder. I think I even brought up on the show a few months ago. And he just talked about how DeFi is in a secular downtrend where there's not a lot of interest in DeFi right now. There's not a lot of reasons for using it at the moment. Like There's not a lot of hot tokens out there. There's not a ton of utility. Like We have a lot of the same tools from 2020. And people who like using those tools Maybe people who need loans because they have big whale bags. That's about it. Like you're not going to bring in a lot of new users. I was also like interviewing Vitalik the other day and talking about DeFi, and he just stated that he thought all of this was oversaturated. Right, like this whole market is oversaturated. And I, I think there's a case uh, point there, right, where like a lot of people came in, they built DeFi applications in 2020. It was a hot new thing, but then it's all open source, and people just started copying, pasting, making their own versions of it. Before you knew it, we had a lot of different variants of Uniswap. We had a lot of different lending protocols. We had a lot of different protocols out there, and you could choose so many. And that leads to one issues like we saw with Curve Token, or we're seeing on Binance Smart Chain actually right now. But also, it just leads to less interest in using these protocols because there's so many to choose from. It's just there's there's too much out there, and so people kind of walk away from it. I think what we're looking at right now is maybe like the bottom of the DeFi market where there's going to be a lot of scrappy players are left, people who can actually build interesting things. And hopefully we see a rebound from there that like breeds innovation. Wendy, I'll throw to you. I actually want to disagree with Vitalik on all the different competitors we have. I think that it's good to have a lot of different competitors in the market because it shows who's going to come out on top. If you don't have a lot of competition, you're going to have a monopoly, which is what we see with our television, with our cable. Um, with our banks, with internet, cell phones, etc. You have just a couple set companies that are just doing the bare minimum. And there's no real innovation. There's nothing being brought to the customers that's very exciting. So I am all for competition between entrepreneurs in a non-corporate capital market, capitalistic market. I just want to shout out the producers for taking us on a, a 10 out of 10 journey today. We started with the failure of the centralized points in this ecosystem. Then we went to like DeFi hacks from North Korean hackers. Then we were on to risk management. And now we can see wow. why funds aren't flying into DeFi. No There's a lot to figure out. We went on a journey today. Good job, producers. Also, nice low-key flex by Will Foxley. 
Uh, just talking to Vitalik the other day. Yeah. <laughs> Check out Web3 Builders. Hot new podcast. Check yeah. that out. New podcast. New Good podcast, stuff. guys. And sponsor right. them too and pay them a lot of money and sponsorship stuff. Yes. And tacos. I'll take it. Tacos. I'll take it. Nice. Talk all right. sponsors, well, welcome. All right, all right, all right. Well, that's enough BD for the day. All right, we'll leave the show there. Thank you so much for watching. This has been The Hash, brought to you by Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. We're happy you're here. I'm Zach Seward. That's Jen Sinassi, Wendy O, Will Foxley. We'll be back tomorrow. You have a great day. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.